You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks I have an inspiring conversation with an ordinary person leading an extraordinary life. And my guest today is Shannon Maroney. She is truly an inspiration for us all. I found her memoir, Through the Glass, to be incredibly moving. It was hard not to be emotional reading it. It's very difficult not to feel emotional and inspired by her story. But she has another book out now, too, that's coming out this week. And she co-authored it with Tymea Nagy. It's the story of Tymea Nagy. She is an extraordinary survivor of human trafficking and forced sex labor. So Shannon Maroney was a high school teacher and counselor in 2005 when violence tore her life apart. Her husband of only one month had been arrested after confessing to the sexual assault and kidnapping of two women. Shannon's heartbreaking story is one of grief, violence, judgment, and stigma, along with the story of a journey filled with compassion, forgiveness, and hope. Hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for agreeing to share your story and Taimia's story on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Janine. And what a nice uh, introduction. Oh, thank you. I try. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we just had a, a lovely conversation and you said, oh, we weren't recording. I know. I probably... <laughs> That happens a lot as I, because this is the first time we've talked. So it was nice to get to know each other and a lot of really good things came out. Um, But so how about starting with your story, if you'd like, and then we can uh, get into Taimiya's too, um, about the the timeline of how you were treated. um, And then we can talk about Taimiya and and, uh, you're a, a restorative justice advocate. I mean, you've done so many things since this happened. I I mean, it's a stupid analogy, but you really have made lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good analogy though, I think. Yeah, I think it is. I mean and I think, you know, what else what else can any of us do? You know, we don't get a choice about how other people treat us or their actions or decisions. We really only have a choice about how we respond. Absolutely. And um, the choice to try to do something that was meaningful out or that made sense out of such a senseless, senseless situation and, and senseless violence that my ex-husband um, committed was something that I just really felt compelled to do. Um and I hope that I've, I hope I've been able to make a difference. Um, now I have to ask you, did on retrospect, because mm-hmm. hindsight's always, you know, wonderful. Were there any signs for you that, that there was something off about him? Um, not at all. Interesting. Not at all. Um, except for the fact that Jason had committed a crime when he was 18 years old. So 15 years prior to when I met him, he committed a second degree murder at age 18 and had served at 10 year sentence in prison and had been out uh, leading what um, corrections officials and um, psychologists and all of his wonderful friends in the community of Kingston, where I met him, uh, said was the life of a model, um, like the poster boy for corrections, really someone who was rehabilitated, 
who had a second chance, was doing wonderfully, and really was at no risk to reoffend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, some people will say, I think some of my haters, you know, will say, well, obviously, you know, you're just completely naive and stupid and all sorts of things because the biggest sign was that he'd already committed an offense. And I think, you know, and also it wasn't as though I sort of dove into a relationship with someone who was just let out or had really any, um, we just didn't really have, really didn't have any concerns. Um, I, I was, I felt I was very head over heart where immediately upon meeting him and going out on a first date and we met in a wonderful circumstance where he was the coordinator and chef at a a uh, soup kitchen, a uh, restaurant for low-income patrons, and I took a group of my high school students to volunteer there. Um, so, you know, there's absolutely no way I could have known that he had any sort of um, anything like the past that he had. Um, and so I was really appreciative when he told me right up front on like the first five minutes of our first date um, that this is the truth about him, the unchangeable truth. And, um, you know, I then just really embarked on, um, like a really soul searching journey for myself, but also fact finding just in terms of, um, I just really needed to be very smart about this and, um, do my research meeting with, um, professionals in his life for, even if we were going to continue on as friends, it just seemed like that was a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through that research process and, and, um, also getting to know him and, and the people that he had in his life, and uh, none of whom were from the prison system at all. And all of whom were wonderful, you know, engaged community members and so on. Um, we had a, a wonderful relationship and Jason, um, was a a wonderful partner. We had just a a beautiful life together and we got along like, you know, just um, like soulmates, I guess is the, is the cliche, but that's certainly how I felt and how he felt. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, you know, after living together for two years and getting married, um, when he committed these incredibly violent, um, sexual assaults on two strangers in our community and then kidnapped them to our home, um, the shock was, I, I mean, it was, it was immeasurable and there was nothing about his past that could prepare me or anyone who knew him to ever think that he was going to reoffend and particularly that he would sexually reoffend since he had not been a sexual offender in the past. Mm-hmm. I, mean, um, I think this is an important point that, you know, I, I think that the, the common misconception would be that, oh, you fell in love and you didn't know what you were doing and, you know, you're, you, you, you were missing signs and, and guideposts. And it sounds like you, you really took a very, um, a very thoughtful approach to this. It, it's, it's not like you were being, um, I'm not sure what the word, I've been having trouble finding my words this week. Yeah, um, <laughs> but you know, you, I, I can tell you all the terrible things I've been called. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that really comes from like, you know, I had, I remember an interview, an interviewing in a, a Montreal radio station and the interviewer asking me, like, and so you were very young when this happened. And I said, well, I, actually I was 30, which I think is a <laughs> reasonable age at which to get married. Yes, you know, very. Um, 
and, or, or sort of looking, looking at me and looking for what would make me different from other people. So I, that maybe is not well explained, but I would say the people who sort of ran from my life or had accusations or, um, you know, all these negative things to say about me, I think were, you know, people who were legitimately terrified. It was such a horrific, um, it was just very, very traumatizing. Um, first and foremost for the victims, of course, mm-hmm. and their friends and family. Um, and then, you know, for anyone who knew Jason, you know, his parole officer, who was a wonderful guy, I think we were his favorite house to visit. He'd <laughs> pop over once a month or so, every six weeks for coffee. You know, and for him, this was, you know, your worst nightmare, I think, as a parole officer. Mm. And he was also very traumatized and he was also, you know, investigated and so on and questioned and all sorts of things um, for the store owner where the crimes happened. Um, for me, for my family, it was really just the ripple effect of these, this violence was enormous. Well, I can imagine the parole officer must, I, I mean, he probably still thinks, what did I miss? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, How- I think, think I, I don't want to for him, but I think both he and I have just also really, really come to terms with that. Jason is at fault. He did not give any signs that he was, you know, kind of unwinding internally as we only in retrospect learned as he disclosed and and was extremely forthcoming um, about how he'd been feeling mentally and emotionally, but he hid that he hid it Mm -hmm. as many people hide things. People hide addictions. They hide, um, you know, all sorts of problems because they think that they can be in control of it themselves. They can manage it because of the shame or the fear of getting caught Mm -hmm. with whatever it is. It's, it's devastating, you know, to sort of think that they had help. And I, I just remember, you know, one of the first things that I said to Jason, when I went to visit him in jail a few days after he'd, he'd been, arrested. And, you know, I, I went to do that because the, the predominant question was what happened? Right. What happened? I said to him what my mom had actually said to me, um, on the night and the morning that, that we all found out about the crimes. She said, didn't Jason know how much we loved him? Mm -hmm. And that's what I asked him. I said, Jason, didn't you know how much I loved you? How much we all loved you? And it, wasn't that any of us was looking for an excuse, but it was just like, how could someone so loved who had come so far in his life be capable of this? And that type of not only self-destruction, but, you know, destruction of other people's lives was really very, very devastating. And more than anything, it was really, really sad. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. People, you know, some people would demand of me, like, where is your anger? Why aren't you angry? And I certainly had flashes of anger, but I also say I could not hold on to anger because my heart was absolutely broken. Mm-hmm. No, I do understand that completely. Yeah. And the predominant feeling was sadness. And I remember hearing that in the victim's statements that the predominant feeling was sadness, particularly from, from the, the second victim. And I, she didn't mention anger. And so I think that, you know, that's something, um, like victims of crime or people affected by crime in the way that I was, um, 
are ex- there are a lot of expectations that come on that, mm-hmm. um, and it can become then very isolating when we don't live up to those expectations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we disappoint people with our the complexity of our emotions, and. So I think for me, the decision to write and speak about my experience was really to just um, bring about some awareness or understanding to this complexity and as well as how you can love a person and hate what they've done. Mm -hmm. And that, that I think being able to do that has been a very gratifying experience for me. And I sure hope that it's helped people over the years to not be so quick to judge um, other families of offenders or people who are in really stigmatized positions to remove the stigma on them because um, stigma is one of the greatest barriers to achieving good mental health after trauma. Mm -hmm. Now, and you were shunned for, for continuing to be supportive of him as a human being. You weren't supporting what he did, but no. you were supportive as of him as a human being. Um, and it you were really kind of torn apart for that. Yep, I sure was. And I will also say like supporting him as a human being, but also as a very accountable and remorseful human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jason had called 911 himself on the night of the crimes, asked for the police to come and rescue the women. And he had developed a suicide plan, which he did not get to carry out, and then was then gave a complete full confession. So that's also, you know, I think for me, that was extremely fortunate, because not everyone even has the offender, you know, uh, like even known or caught or whatever. And then certainly, most of the time, a lawyer is going to step in and say, you're not going to plead guilty. You're going to plead not guilty, which is actually what happened to Jason. So we had to fire that lawyer and find a lawyer who was going to be able to help facilitate a guilty plea mm-hmm. and even facilitate the first um, acceptance of a dangerous offender designation uh, without a separate sentencing hearing for that, um, which is what Jason did. So I think it's also supporting, you know, I supported his confession, his accountability, his efforts to plead guilty and to give a proper statement and so on. But I think because people didn't know that, I didn't have a voice in the process. They jumped to conclusions. Like I remember seeing, I stopped to get gas after or going or coming from the Lindsay jail, which was quite a, about almost an hour drive. And someone that I know, like from work, one of the office staff, was also at the pump, the gas pump. And she was like, Oh, you know, where, where are you going? And I said, like, I was just so kind of like, I don't know, just not prepared. And I said, Oh, I'm going to Lindsay. And she said, you're not going to visit him. Are you? And I, I just sort of was like, um, yes, I it just felt like such a punching bag. And I was so, I just, you know, didn't have a shield of armor around mm. me. She, she said, well, you should know that there are other fish in the sea. And then she got in the car and, <laughs> and it was this whole idea of like, you know, sort of stand by your man or something like that, which was just really incredibly frustrating and aggravating for me that that was the perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I looked at my own experience, I mean, there are, I, I certainly felt victimized by Jason and, um, you know, victim, such a tricky, tricky word. And I had, he had also committed acts of voyeurism on me, which did give me this official victim status, but I just had a lot of discomfort 
from using that word. But what I can say about feeling victimized and being a victim is that the V is for voiceless, vulnerable, and all sorts of negative things. And that the triumph over that victimization, in my view, and in the work that I do with victims or, or people overcoming trauma, is to transform the V into vindicated, validated, and um, vocal. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. But that's what writing does and speaking out and stuff and, and just being able to, um, yeah, have people really consider things from the other side. And I think that's, you know, my number one, the best messages I get from, from readers or audiences is just, you know, I never thought before about what it would be like to be in your situation. And now I think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like now I see someone arrested on the, on the news and I, think of course about the victims, the direct victims. And I also think about that person's family and even sometimes that offender's life. Right. Oh, I agree. I, and, and not that many people, thank goodness, um, have this experience, this kind of experience. And so I think it's, it's really important that you, you have been able to share it um, so that people can understand it's, it's often, hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes when you haven't had an experience. And I think reading your book is, is uh, just as good, better than having the experience ourselves. Oh, yes. I hope hope it's always better to read about these things and go through them. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I I love that you used just use this wonderful phrase that walking in someone else's shoes because mm-hmm. it's a good transition to talk about this new book, mm-hmm. um, Out of Shadows, the memoir of Tamea Nagy, um, who was trafficked to Canada and put into forced sex labor until she escaped and has gone on to do extraordinary work. Um, because she and I, she has always said to me, you know, you just put yourself in my shoes in a way that nobody else who hasn't had this experience has been able to do as, you know, as her, as her writer, as her co-author. And I always say, yes, in your stilettos. And we laugh, you know, because we have to have such a humor about these things. But, you know, I think to like the, the physical pain that she endured in, in literally wearing these incredibly painful stiletto high heels being made to dance and strip in nightclubs for up to 20 hours a day. Oh my God. um, Was, yeah, I think I, I have never remotely been in any level of this situation. I've never stepped inside a strip club, but I sure feel that I have now been in some of the seediest nightclubs in Toronto through the writing process and through interviewing Tamea, listening to her, reading some of her own writing. And I think that that's the most amazing thing about storytelling and about books is that we do get that privilege, even if it's a painful privilege to get as close as we can to someone else's life and experience and try to put ourselves in their shoes, mm-hmm. look through their eyes and their experiences. So it, it's been an incredible experience to be able to help bring someone else's uh, just incredible story um, to the page and then out to readers in a week. Mm-hmm. So Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about, give us some background about Taimia? What, sure. how, how did she end up? being sex trafficked. Yeah. So Tamiya, um, I think her name is pronounced, well, I know her name is pronounced Tamiya Nagy. I always pronounced it Tamiya for the longest time. And then I, I met a whole bunch of her family and friends and everyone was calling her Tamiya. And I said, Tamiya, 
I've been saying your name wrong this whole time. And she said, oh, I love how you say my name. (laughs) I'm continuing on saying it as Timea. Most people say Timea. It's a Hungarian name. Uh, As she said in Hungarian, Timea Nagy is like having a name like Lisa Smith. (laughs) But yes, Timea Timea and I were... um, were introduced by um, the edit- my editor from Through the Glass, and she had uh, her sister in law was a police officer who had gone to one of Tamea's trainings uh, that she does for police, frontline workers and police officers, border security, and so on about how to recognize and work with victims of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I get this uh, the sister in law who was a police officer went right to her sister in law editor and said, "This woman has an incredible story, and she really needs to have a book." So we were matchmade, I like to say, and <laughs> we um, just hit it off on so many levels. And Tamea has this really ebullient, resilient spirit. She's, I think, you know, when when my husband, I'm remarried, and and I have twin uh, twin seven year olds with my oh, husband. Oh my! Mike. <laughs> yeah, and um, Mike went the night that we met at a Valentine's Day party. He said. After he asked me what I do, and I sort of filled him in. I, my book wasn't published yet, but I was writing and doing a lot of speaking. And I just gave him like a five or eight minute version of my story and then waited to see if he was going to walk away or not. Uh-huh. His response to me was he said, You know, I just never could have imagined that something like that happened to you. You seem so normal. Mm. And whatever also, that is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and also I think just also really happy. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, always have been just a very outgoing kind of a sunshiny person. I really love life. Mm-hmm. And that's what he saw. And I, for me, I always think that's like the greatest reward that you're no longer walking around. Like when you have PTSD, to me, it feels like you are walking around with a loaded gun. Mm. Um, and it's very frightening to have it. Mm. It's frightening to live in a world that you have to be hyper vigilant of. And so overcoming that trauma, I think it is, we always have our trauma stories to me. And I often connect around still having triggers. You know, there are still times when we feel vulnerable and, and, um, can relive parts of our experience, Mm. but it's the, I think this great spirit of, life loving and a positive outlook that creates resilience or elasticity to get through those times. So when I met Tamea, I think I said the exact same thing to her that Mike had said to me when she sort of, you know, told me the basics of her story, which I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, I just sort of said to me, I can't believe that someone, uh, that you have gone through this, you know, whatever I, I don't know what I thought someone who had been trafficked and put into forced sex labor would look like or act like, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, to me, it's just someone you love to have around. She's just a mm. beautiful, smart, and fun-loving person and incredibly hardworking. Um, so she, um, kind of in a, in a nutshell, to me, I grew up in, in communist Hungary. We are about the same age. She's just about to turn 41 and um, just a couple of years old in that. <laughs> um, we'll call it the same. She grew up in communist Hungary and uh, as uh, she had this budding career as a VJ on TV, promoting music, making music videos, a little small business by the time she was 17, 18, 19. And then what happened in Hungary or with in all of Eastern Europe really with after the fall of communism is that the economies uh, fell. Um, the countries and populations found themselves 
ill-equipped Ill to make such a sudden transformation to free market economy. While they, they you know, they've been raised in a, parented by by a communist government, not making their own decisions, kind of brainwashed in many ways, um, and just having all of this ideology, as well as not having computers or cordless phones or all the things that she talked about. And then all of a sudden the wall came down, the Russians left and it was like a, a sort of a free for all for everyone to try to survive in this new oh, world. Boy. Yeah. Mm. And it was so interesting for me because of course I, I remember being the same age as me. I remember the wall coming down and of course mm -hmm. the West just thought like, this is the most amazing thing and how happy and wonderful. And in, in many ways it was, but to me, I also said, you know, there's a real other side to this for them living through it, which is this uncertainty, kind of fear, not knowing what was going to happen next, having the world open up and then realize how far behind they were mm -hmm. and how would they ever catch up. So to me, like many people fell on very hard times, her um, business that she'd started um, producing videos and so on couldn't compete with the big Western music labels coming in and so on. So she uh, found herself in some serious economic trouble and she had some trouble with her family. Her parents had split, her mom moved away and left her and her brother to um, manage all the bills in their apartment. So at one point, Tanea was uh, made a new friend in her building uh, and that friend encouraged her to uh, get out of her financial troubles by answering an ad in the newspaper asking for women to young women to work in Canada as babysitters and housekeepers, no English necessary. So Tanea went for an interview with a recruiter from the agency, and next thing she knows, she's on a plane to come to Canada. Not one word of English. This is one of the, her vulnerabilities because, of course, they were not taught a single word of English in um, under communism. Mm -hmm. She arrives in Canada. And the agency or the agents, as she only finds out much, much, much later on, are a ring of human traffickers, also Hungarian, trafficking their own people. Mm -hmm. And she is brought immediately to a nightclub where she is sexually assaulted by the owner and then made to start stripping and dancing. There are many ins and outs and traumas of this story, the ways that she was manipulated to believe that this is all her fault. The agency was trying to help her. Um, they come up with more and more expenses that she has to pay, and her debt always seems to go up instead of down, no matter how hard she works. After three months, uh, Tamea was able to escape her traffickers in a very dramatic and frightening way. And then over the years, um, she's ended up working with RCMP to break up the biggest human trafficking ring in Canada. Oh she goodness. won the Governor General's uh, Matoria Service Award for opening Canada's first safe house for sex trafficked workers, uh, starting a charity and, a, and now a social enterprise that she employs rescued um, victims and, and survivors. Uh, she has spoken at the UN already. She won the Prime Minister's Award and she's going to The Hague to speak at the UN on the financial aspect of um, organized crime and, and trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so that what that uh, police officer said a number of years ago to the editor was, she needs a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm privilege of becoming her uh, co-author, her writer on this project. And Tamea is a wonderful storyteller. It was easy to interview her and get lots and lots of details and do the research. But 
just um, be able to put my own writing schools skills to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, language skills, as of course, to me, was um, not able to get a full education and learned English on her own from watching Friends um, mm-hmm. because of programs. So, yeah, so we have our baby coming out uh, next week, as we like to like to call it. Well, you know, what struck me of what, about what you just said is that she opened the first safe house for uh, sex trafficking victims. I mean, yes. that that floors me that, that that's the first, that there wasn't anything. I mean, what year was that? Um, let me think. That ish. Was, I, I want to say ish. Um, I want to say around 2007. I should really, really know, but it's all in the book and I've let some of the details go from my, well, that, from my mind. That's understandable. But there's nothing before 2007? That's incredible. No, and there, there also is not one now. Tamea was sort of forced to close that due to ongoing funding battles. They opened that house in Hamilton, Ontario, she and her organization. They had capacity for, I believe it was, they had eight beds and um, could take, uh, would take victims for sort of up to a week until they found a little bit more stable home for them uh, or were able to get them back to their families, um, have them kind of like an anti-brainwashing counseling and so on. And they ended up receiving sometimes up to 200 requests a month from police. And they didn't, were unable to um, keep it open. So again, another hope is that with this book coming out, that people are going to become really, really aware of the this incredible issue that is so it's just a huge issue in Canada right now that we'll be able to get permanent funding for another safe house and Tamea has also opened um, this uh, wonderful social enterprise corporation called Tamea's Market where survivors of sex trafficking and one incredible young woman herself Michelle who was trafficked out of her Oakville, Ontario high school um, has designed and they all make handmade, beautiful bath products Mm. and um, some other things, fair trade coffee and so on that they sell. And all of the money goes uh, toward Tamea's cause. And it also employs these women rather than keep them sort of at a charity model. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They're important. So it's, yeah, it's uh, just truly, truly amazing. I just, I still, I just can't, understand i can't believe that the government hasn't funded more of these all over yeah i mean there should be at least one in each province i mean i do, it just seems it, something I, I it seems logical to me yeah yeah so yeah so well i'm very very hopeful one of our launches is in ottawa the working group a, a parliamentary a multi-party or non-partisan however you might say it just mm-hmm. MPs and, and senators and so on who are wanting to address this issue. And, and some good, very good work has been done. Tamea was brought to Canada under the Exotic Dancers visa program that Canada <laughs> had at the time. There's an yeah. Exotic Dancers visa program? There was. Oh, and she God. was with to end it. And I think it was originally designed to sort of legalize and keep above board uh, women who were coming to work in strip clubs and nightclubs, and but it failed. And so I think around 1,700 women were brought mainly from Eastern Europe at mm-hmm. the time and were very much taken advantage of in some really terrible ways mm-hmm. under that visa program. So it has been canceled. But it, it is horrifying because it also speaks to the demand. Yeah, the I, know. I know. 
And so I think, you know, Tamea and I have talked, she said, you know, she said, I really want to work with you going forward on, uh, for one kind of some restorative justice and restorative education work, because so many of the pimps that are, and the traffickers who are getting these girls at high schools have as much as they groom these girls and young women to be trafficked, Mm -hmm. they have been groomed for a life of crime. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a whole situation where, you know, there's kind of the rank of boys, you know, as young as 11, 12, 13 being groomed to be drug dealers. And then only a few have the ability to be promoted to human trafficking. Oh, nice promotion. Yeah. And I, and you know, and I, and I, I say that, I mean, it's, it's so awful to say, and I don't mean to be in any way cheeky about that using those kind of terms, but if we don't start to address what is the reality for many young people in this country, that they can be groomed to be trafficked or traffickers, we're going to continue to have a huge problem. So Tame and I are just kind of in early talks about how we might be able to do that along with her, um, her survivor, Michelle. And also, you know, I think just that, you know, I want men to read this book just as much as women. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these books and memoirs can be kind of pigeonholed as women's journey memoirs or so on. And it very much is. And women readers will absolutely love this book and book clubs and so on. But it's really important that men uh, read this book as well. And then we start to understand the link between early pornography use, the humor and acceptance of um, having strippers for bachelor parties or these rites of passage for young men, how how much damage that actually does to the perception of women mm-hmm. and these young uh, boys and young men's experience of sexual intimacy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so on. And, and if we, we just need to kind of address it at all ends. Tamea, I went to a, a training that she did for frontline workers and, and she, where she spoke about kind of her next steps and she used the parable of the, um, the babies in the river And she said, you know, I was uh, a baby in the river drowning, floating down this river. I couldn't get myself out um, for a long time. And then I I managed to. And then she said, and then I see all these other babies coming down the river and coming down the river. So I jump in and I try to pull them out and save them. And then I train other people to jump in the river and pull them out and save them with me. And she said, at some point I stand back and I I look and I go, who the F is putting these babies in the water? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just a, you know, really important thing that we need to really address uh, as a society on, on ways, small and big, how we educate our own kids about healthy relationships from a young age, and then how we attack this from a criminal aspect um, and through financial issues. Tamea has um, developed an incredible program called Follow the Money, which helps bankers and anti-money laundering experts uh, and financial tech software companies to be able to detect transactional patterns in victim accounts because although much of the work is still cash, much has gone online in terms of banking transactions and so on. And when we can find victim accounts and how they may be characterized, uh, they will always lead eventually to the accounts of the traffickers. And then we can bring them down on financial crime like Al Capone Mm -hmm. because financial crime carries hard evidence and sexual assault as he said, she said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I saw that in her video. I thought that was pretty cool. 
Yeah, and she's been featured in The Economist, and your listeners might want to tune in or just Google search her for The Economist and Forbes magazine for her work on on that aspect of things. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be putting some links on the podcast website for both of you. Um, what about, I mean, I so much of this is generational, isn't it, that... It, people abused as children. And then they I mean, some people will say that it ends here, you know, but other people just kind of keep the keep the abuse going, keep passing it on to other human beings to other children to animals. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I, unresolved trauma mm-hmm. has all sorts of effects on people, either continuing on their lives with a victim mindset Mm -hmm. or as we say in restorative justice, hurt people, hurt people. So what is restorative justice? Let's talk about that because you've mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. Um, Restorative justice is, um, we like to say a victim centered approach um, that is characterized by some asking some different questions about crime. Our conventional justice system or criminal justice system asks three main questions about crime, three important questions, but they're also limited. Um, the first is who did it, uh, or sorry, what law was broken rather. Okay. Um, we see it's in a reflection of charges, who did it. And it's extremely rare that going back to my own situation, we have someone like Jason who says I did it. And then we ask what punishment does that person deserve? That those systems and those questions usually and and people going through the criminal justice system tend to end up feeling more victimized and more traumatized than they do feel as though, quote unquote, justice has been served Mm. Um, because it's not really something that's served anyone. Mm -hmm. So restorative justice asks some different questions. It will ask who has been harmed. And in a way, we're opening up to a broader understanding of who has been harmed when a crime has taken place that will include, of course, the the direct victims, uh, as well as their families and friends, the community, the family and friends of the offender, um, the, you know, whatever systems are around and so on. And then once we know who's been harmed, we want to ask, what do they need? Um, We cannot undo what has happened, but there may be things that people need to try to return to having a healthy life while they accommodate a space for whatever has happened to them. And we want to ask those people themselves what they need (laughs) instead of just Mm -hmm. deciding for them. Mm -hmm. And then the third question is um, whose responsibility or obligation is it to provide for those needs? And that includes the offender as well. So what is it that they can do? I mean, I know in my own situation with Jason is that he went into solitary confinement immediately after his arrest and was there for nine months. Wow. And uh, in that time, like he was basically, you know, society was kept safe from him for all the time that he was in solitary. And certainly now he is serving an indeterminate sentence and is likely unlikely to ever be released. And he's turned mm-hmm. down all of his parole hearings um, since he doesn't want to be released as he doesn't know really the cause of his violence or doesn't want to ever hurt anybody again. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. But I realized what is also happening is that while society is protected from him, um, he's protected from having to face up to what he did mm-hmm. or make amends. And what that did for me was leave me as the target for blame, for accusation, 
And fortunately, also, I need to say how much compassion I received from my golden circle of friends and family mm-hmm. who walked with me on this journey and helped me never forget how much life is worth living. And that included strangers that would drop off a little tiny lasagna on my front door, <laughs> hey, you know, which is just an act of great, great compassion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's what also kept me from living my own life sentence. Mm-hmm. Because for many people, um, you were guilty by association. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's something I thought happened like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. And I even lost my job. Um, as a public school guidance counselor, I was just told by my school board, um, you will all be returning to your position. We'll find a school outside of town where you can return when your doctor says you're ready to come back and don't come in the school building. You represent something terrible and it's too difficult for people to see you. Mm-hmm. And this was, I always called the second trauma, the second earthquake And I never even got to say goodbye to my students. And I worked with the most vulnerable kids in the school. Mm. You know, with um, coming out publicly, um, you know, many years, like when my book came out almost eight years ago, um, did bring me back in touch with so many of my students. And that was very, very healing. But um, I offered, uh, I really wanted to do a restorative dialogue with my principal and superintendent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And restorative justice has to be, is voluntary on both sides. Okay. That we would come into dialogue, prepared and facilitated dialogue. It's not about crushing people together at all, but they turn it down a couple of times. And that was really disappointing, but still being part of a restorative process with the agency that I worked with um, was helpful to me. And it also let me know that it was okay to then speak very publicly about what happened so that it would never happen to anybody again. Mm-hmm. Would you talk a little bit more about the direct dialogue? That, that you do with restorative justice? It's facilitated. So it really involves a process of preparation for both the victim or victims and the offender or offenders by professional facilitators. We do have a national program um, through Correctional Services of Canada for federally incarcerated. We have many, 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 many uh, community-based programs uh, in the country. So people can request their interest in having that type of a process. And what the dialogue, when when the parties are ready to come into it, is designed to do is for one, answer questions. I think people who have been victims have so many questions. Why? Why did you do it? Why me? What, like, how am I ever going to know you're not going to do it again? Do you understand the impact that this has had on me? It's very much an empathy building program. And that chance to ask those questions of the person who's like the only person who really has the answers Mm -hmm. is offender. And most of those kind of questions don't get, don't get resolved in a criminal justice process. That dialogue can be very healing for people. Um, It looks many different ways. I would really encourage your readers to just spend a little bit of time exploring some of the online resources, information about what it is and what it isn't. Sometimes people think restorative justice, that sounds like prison pillow fluffing or soft on crime. But what we all know, I think, and certainly any of us who are parents, is that it is much more difficult to face the person that you've harmed than it is to be punished for it. And I know that with my own kids, they would much rather when they've had a sister squabble be sent to their rooms or 
be deprived of something than feel the guilt and the shame and have to apologize and understand how they hurt someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is, is actually harder. It's also very brave. And I think is the greatest chance for healing. And the results of restorative justice are that instead of sort of the four to 8% of people who will say that they feel satisfied, victims feel satisfied after a criminal justice process, in restorative justice case, there's about a 95% satisfaction rate. Wow, that's a big difference. Yeah, and a very low, low reoffending rate. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I, I can imagine that it would really help both people move on. Yes. Yeah. Move forward. Wow. There we are. Yeah. (laughs) My little people, I have to end on a lighter note because I am hosting, my little twins just turned seven and this afternoon we're hosting a giant play date in the park behind our house and I will be compelled to go and um, set up the sidewalk chalk and snacks and stuff shortly, which is so nice. One of the most wonderful, you know, we, little kids offer this uh, great focus on what's, you know, the little things that are just so meaningful in life. Right. (laughs) You you have your different hats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that they keep you they keep you grounded. They they do. I, I have to say though, becoming a mother after such trauma for me was is the probably the hardest thing I have ever endeavored to do. Oh, interesting. I really thought you know this is my happy ending. This is going to be so great, and it, you know, and it and it is now, especially now that they're seven. But um. I, it was a very, very, very hard road for me when they were first born. Um, I felt like all of my resources had been used up to recover from what Jason did and, and come through that experience. Mm-hmm. And then I had two tiny babies to look after a very traumatic birth. And um, I had to really, really deal with the PTSD stuff again. So um, my own... I wrote for myself uh, took a lot longer to come about <laughs> and mm-hmm. readers can see that in the book it took a lot longer to come about and I would say that I'm definitely in it now <laughs> mm-hmm. how did you deal with the PTSD after the births oh lots of counseling I wrote Jason a really mean letter saying that I unforgive I unforgive you because you did this all to me <laughs> to which he responded with more apology and what can he do and he can't do anything really just a lot of support from my friends and family and a lot of tears a lot of tears mm. but yeah it's an it's a it, it, yeah help is needed for 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 people. It's so needed for a lot of new moms for lots of different reasons. So mm-hmm. yeah, just do my best. I wouldn't say I was perfect. But <laughs> okay, now. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that uh, this might, I might have written this down from your book, I'm not sure. But I really like your understanding of victimization. Um, and what you wrote was that another's choices have taken your choices away. Yes. Yeah. And so recovering from that and helping and supporting victims and survivors is a lot about, has to be a lot about giving them choices back. Mm -hmm. Ah, Um, makes sense. That's my, uh, that's my take. So how can people, you know, if, if somebody is moved by this, which I can't imagine who wouldn't be, um, and, and they, they want to do something, uh, 
to be of service, to to help? What what are some of the things that people can do? Yeah, thank you. I always say start local. Mm. Uh, so many of our programs, in whether it's restorative justice or victim services, or my goodness, my mom uh, runs the only program for women at the Hamilton Detention Center teaching card making with another one of her retired kindergarten teacher friends as a volunteer is to look at what the needs are and opportunities in your own community um, and get involved in some way. Beyond that, there's a good list of resources in the back of my book. Uh, Tamea has resources on her website, doing uh, educating yourself a little bit. I think all of those are good things. Money is always needed. Money is always, always needed. So looking to make some sort of donation where you can, whether it's to a local organization or uh, um, something uh, more broad, and then also getting politically involved and letting your MP know that these issues are important to you, both human trafficking or restorative justice or crime prevention or whatever it may be. And, and voicing uh, your concerns and your desire for whatever it is that you see as needed. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that, because I'm American, that I'm <laughs> sure that we have the same problem in the States, that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, you're, you're Canadian and you're talking about Canada, but I think it's all of North America. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in the United States, a very recent study just came out that's a bit 45% of Americans have been affected by the crimes of a loved one someone in their family, and 2.2 million people are incarcerated. So it's it's a huge issue in the U.S., and there are also some really good restorative programs, too, I will say. So a wonderful book I also recommend is called Dreams from the Monster Factory, which is the memoir of a criminal lawyer who could no longer keep defending the same guys over and over who would sort of go to jail as she calls it, the monster factory, learn to become better criminals, be more traumatized and, and more hard-hearted, come out and re- in the, into the exact same social situation or socioeconomic situation they've been in before and reoffend and be sent back. And she said, I just couldn't send any more of them back. So she started to work inside prison, started a restorative living unit in um, the San Bruno County Jail, which had a murder a week in the rest of its population. And in the restorative living unit had a push and shove argument once in 15 years, an extremely low rate of recidivism. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's Sunny Schwartz in the book. I will, I'll put it, yeah, I'll put a link for that book too, uh, uh, on the website. Um, one thing I, I'll just share, and I think I've shared it before, but I I just, I still am amazed in all this time. Um, When I was in nursing school at the University of Massachusetts, I was in a small class and, you know, we'd go off to the the hospital and I think it was in Worcester to do some of our training and, and, you know, there'd be like nine or 10 girls to a room, (laughs) you know, in sleeping bags and all over the place. And one night we were talking about our our families and our upbringing. And honest to God, I was the only person who did not have some form of an abusive childhood. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I was like, I used to think I was the normal one. Now I've realized I'm the abnormal one. Sadly. And I think too, you know, I feel uh, at this time, um, we are as a society becoming much more aware of the need for mental health care, 
to destigmatize it, to look at how we take care of ourselves, how we take care of others in our community. And I think always it's like an airplane. We have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first mm-hmm. um, before we can help other people. Good so it's also very much of doing this work or, or being involved or being part of a community is to really have the courage and get the support to work through the things, the hurts that we all have in our lives, no matter in what form or to what extremity that they've had unresolved grief and so on that, you know, we have, like, I don't think resilience is a character trait. It's a practice. Mm. And, um, you know, I think we just all, I I don't mean any way to sound obnoxious about this because this is an ongoing thing for me. (laughs) It's like, I'm always one to like very, very often put myself last. And it's just, you know, we do just need to take care of ourselves because healthy people treat others well. And if we know hurt people hurt people, then we know that well people treat others well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's also just about taking the time to acknowledge our own hurts, get the support that we might need to overcome the things that, that are hard for us and then be able to give back and help others. Mm-hmm. I think that is excellently said. Can, can you say that? Excellently said? Well, I just sure. did. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I always say I'm a writer, not an editor. <laughs> I make up really- Actually, I'm a good editor. It's it's hard for me. It's interesting. I just thought of this because I've been listening to books more than reading, um, just because I knit and crochet, so it makes it easy to uh, to actually, you know. take in a book, I'll say, uh, while I'm doing that. But when I read, I I find typos and and grammatical errors all the time. And it drives me nuts because it makes it hard for me to actually read. (laughs) I know. I must say it's hard. It is actually very hard for me to read in the first sort of six months of publishing a book because I'm kind of still in editing mode. Mm-hmm. Of course I do, I you know, edit my own work all the time and it's it's just very hard to just sort of break it. So I'm I'm diving into some House and Home magazines. This <laughs> 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 feels just about right. Good for <laughs> <From> you. <laughs> oh, this has been wonderful, Shannon. Now, before we wrap up, if you could repeat the names of both of the books and how people can get a hold of you or where they can find your website, all all of this information I will put on the, on the podcast website too, but. Okay, sure. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So, um, my uh, my book is, my memoir is called Through the Glass and the memoir of Tanea Nagy is called Out of the Shadows. Both are published by Penguin Random House. Uh, mine is um, uh, also uh, published in the US and UK by Simon and Schuster. Um, and Tamea's uh, Out of the Shadows is also available in the US as well, which I'm really happy to say. They can all be um, purchased at the major retailers as well as your favorite bookstore, and of course, taken out of public libraries. <laughs> I can be found at my website, shannonmaroney.com. Uh, my last name is M-O-R-O-N-E-Y. And Timea is timeanagy.com, T-I-M-E-A-N-A-G-Y.com, as well as timeascause.com. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That's great. I uh, I hope someday I can meet her. I, she sounds... Oh, I hope so. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> 
She, I hope sounds, so. she sounds pretty amazing. Maybe she'd like to come on the podcast and, and uh, tell more about her story in detail. I would love that. Oh, and I think we also need to get her to Nelson. Yes, that would be <laughs> great. <local community. laughs> All the communities that there I'm so, so privileged to visit at last fall. Yeah, well, that's how I uh, got to know about you is my stepson was at a talk that you gave at the high school and he spoke very highly of you and I just right away I thought hmm sounds like good podcast material to me yeah thank you I'm happy we've been able to work it out yeah so is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with uh or do you feel you've Oh, I think just gratitude for listening. <laughs> I think it's just, we all, none of us have any extra time. So I always feel like just anyone who's taking the time to listen, I'm incredibly grateful for. So, and thank you, Janine, for having me. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate who you are and what you're doing. And, and uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks. Thank you. Take care, Shannon. You too, Janine. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much, Shannon Maroney, for sharing your heart and your journey with us. I certainly have a new understanding of what it can be like to be caught up in the criminal justice system. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen to or download episodes and click on links to my guest's information. There is even a donate button if you feel inspired to support the work. You can sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and healthy recipes. And remember, once again, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and check out my podcast YouTube channel with video slideshows of all my conversations. Do you know someone who would benefit from my conversation with Shannon Maroney? I know you do. You must. So please, please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.